0: YouTube runs a large MySQL database to hold the metadata about its videos. As YouTube scaled, the database was sharded, and applications within YouTube had to write queries that were aware of the sharding layout of that database. This is problematic because it pushes complexity to the application developer. An application developer shouldn't have to be aware of how a database is laid out among different nodes. The developer should be able to issue a query and have the cluster simply return the data. Vitesse is an open-source system for scaling large MySQL databases. Sugu Sugumarain is the co-creator of Vitesse, and he started creating it at YouTube. Since YouTube is owned by Google, Vitesse was able to leverage the Borg cluster manager developed at Google. Once Kubernetes came to market, it became more viable to make Vitesse available to open-source developers. Sugu joins the show to talk about the scalability problems that YouTube's database infrastructure encountered, and the motivations for building Vitesse. This was a great conversation for anybody that's interested in distributed systems, distributed databases, Kubernetes. I really enjoyed it. And I hope Sugu comes back on the show at some point in the future. Sugu Sugimaran is the CTO of PlanetScale Data and one of the creators of Vitesse. Sugu, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Oh, thank you. Today we're talking about Vitesse, but I want to start with some of your experiences at YouTube. You were an engineer at YouTube from 2006 to 2018, and that's like 11 or 12 years. It's a really long time. Tell me a story about the difficulty of scaling YouTube in the early days.
1: Oh, so actually when YouTube was uh, started, we were just on one single database, one MySQL database. We called it main. All data was there. And the first time we grew out of it, we did what we call as vertical sharding, which is basically move some tables out of the table and split that into separate databases. But then we soon realized that that's uh, not going to scale. And then we did our first resharding which was 100% manual and scripted and that actually took us until about i believe 2010 and in 2010 that system f- started falling apart which is basically when myself and my co-creator of Vitesse, mike solomon decided to that uh, we are up against the wall and it's just getting worse every day and unless we do something about this, we are going to be in deep trouble. So we actually took ourselves out of firefighting and then said, okay, let's think about all the problems that we face today and see if we can solve them in a unified fashion, which is how Vitesse was born.
0: So when I think about the engineering challenges of YouTube, the first thing I think is actually streaming video. I. I don't think of the database as being that challenging. I mean, you're just adding a video and I imagine the database is just the title of the video, a pointer to where that the URL of the streaming MP4 file is. Why is the database a complicated problem at YouTube? So video is also a challenging process
1: to stream. But the solutions are uh, uh, easily solvable with relatively simple architecture because you can copy the video all over the world and you can build some caches in front of it. And your video serving scalability problem itself is uh, solved that way much more easily. But the metadata, even though it is much smaller, the main problem is that if you're on something like MySQL, you have only one machine that it lives on. and how much smaller can it get? I mean YouTube is still has still a large number of users and videos with billions of videos at YouTube. Uh it was not going to fit on one database. And then you have to still figure out a way to scale it. And the challenge is because the metadata is transactional, you cannot just spread it out and copy it. Uh, it's actually data that changes and is updated by the users. And that has to be, we have to make sure that it's updated correctly. Whereas a video, once it's created, you don't update it. You just copy it and then serve it. So that's what makes uh, scaling transactional data more difficult.
0: Mm. So we're talking about changing the, you know, if a user wants to change the title of their own video, or if they want to add some tags to it, or if they want to comment on it, all of these things are metadata associated with, with that video database entry. And so... With that metadata database, tell me a little bit more about the scalability issues that you were encountering. One scalability issue that
1: uh, we faced was the read traffic. And that was easily, we had an easy way out of it was to basically replicate that data into uh, replicas and direct our reads to them. The downside of uh, reading from a replica is that it is lagged and you may not read up-to-date data. So we actually employed a very interesting technique to handle the fact that we were reading from a replica. For example, a user goes and updates their profile and that data then gets replicated. But then the first thing that people do after they update their profile is to actually reload the page to see if it took. And then almost always, they don't see their page updated because it's not gone to the replica yet. So we did a cheat-, cheat there where you read from a replica. And if it's your own profile, then we send the reads back to the master. But if you're reading somebody else's profile, then that can be read from the replica because people are not checking on something they just updated. So we we had to do some tweaks like that in the application. And then that actually got us a couple more years of scalability. But at the end, once your writes cannot scale, then you're kind of up against the wall. You have to uh, Richard, that's the only way out in terms of scalability.
0: Mm-hmm. Before we get into the the solutions that you built at YouTube with Vitesse, I feel like we should review a little bit about scaling SQL and NoSQL databases. So SQL databases have a defined schema, NoSQL databases have a less defined schema, How do the scalability properties of SQL and NoSQL databases compare?
1: Yeah, there's some history there. Like the one thing that you would notice is they call it NoSQL, uh, not a key value store. There's cultural significance in that name. It is because it was actually a revolt against SQL databases that actually caused NoSQL to be born. And that is because uh, I think uh, around 2000s or so, when the internet started to grow, immensely. People wanted relational databases to solve the scalability problem for them. And I believe they failed in that. And uh, people kind of got mad and said, well, if you're not going to solve this, I'm going to do something that will solve this for myself. And they went to NoSQL. But I think took it too far on this side and gave up some very, very interesting and important properties that are needed for data stores, uh, especially transactions and secondary indexes. And those are the things that NoSQL databases typically don't have. And they actually end up making the application more complex.
0: In the scalability properties of SQL versus NoSQL, why is there some advantage in the, the scalability of the NoSQL databases, or, or at least if we go back to that point in time where NoSQL databases started becoming more popular?
1: Yeah, so there is actually a whole category of applications that a NoSQL database can satisfy. The main restriction is that the NoSQL, uh, NoSQL database doesn't allow you to define secondary relationships. So once you don't have that, it makes the scaling very easy uh, because you can just keep on sharding your data and there's no secondary relationship to keep between the, between them. Scaling NoSQL became extremely easy And also, because NoSQL has such a simple API, it actually became very easy for people to learn. And SQL, you have to go through a course, you have to go through training, you have to understand uh, how to use indexes. So all that complexity went away, and uh, that kind of made NoSQL extremely popular because it was so easy to use. Mm
0: -hmm. But
1: also the downside is that there is only beyond certain level of complexity, you would have to start building those things back in your application.
0: So when you say that term secondary relationship, do you mean in a SQL database, you have foreign keys to access richer data than the certain table that you're looking at, but in NoSQL, you just cram all the data into the same document?
1: That and uh, so there's actually two kinds of uh, secondary indexes. One is the foreign key that you mentioned, which allows you to relate one table with another. But there is also the simpler case where somebody, like I am a user, I create a um, an account for myself. I access that account either through my user ID or it could be my email address. So if I said I enter my user ID, that becomes your primary key. But then what if I say I only know my email address, I don't know my user ID. And then a key value system cannot trivially answer that question. But in a database, you just create a secondary index on the the other column, and then you can instantly search a user by their email address, mm-hmm. for example.
0: Right. Got it. Now there is also the term eventual consistency. Can you explain what the term eventual consistency means when we're talking about SQL versus NoSQL databases? And well, how I guess I think most people know what eventual consistency means, but maybe you could explain how it applies to scaling NoSQL versus scaling SQL databases.
1: So actually, eventual consistency is an approach that actually applies to both SQL and NoSQL databases. So prior to MySQL, the bigger mainframe-based databases, there was only one database and you had to read from that. So there was no question of eventual consistency. But MySQL introduced replication and they made it very fast and efficient, which means that uh, you could actually, what the, the data you've written on a master database, you can go and read it from a replica. And because the replica is lagged, they call that eventual consistency because the replica is, was going to eventually catch up to it. And uh, NoSQL databases embraced this very early on, and eventual consistency got associated to NoSQL databases more than traditional relational databases.
0: Mm-hmm. So when we're talking about the problem specifically to the MySQL infrastructure that you were facing at YouTube if we turn back to these YouTube issues what were those specific scalability problems
1: So the it is just the volume of uh, transactions the volume of traffic uh, the number of writes basically exceeded what the disk what a single disk on a machine could handle and also As we added features, the amount of information that you wanted to store uh, with each user, that also kept growing. So basically, that's two different problems. One is the capacity of the disk that the amount of data you can store on a single machine has a limit based on the physical capacity of a disk. And the number of IOPS you can perform is limited by the hardware bus itself. And those limits now are, when we actually faced these problems at YouTube, these were, we thought were unique to YouTube, but now we are seeing even smaller companies face, hit these limits very quickly.
0: I thought that when YouTube was getting big, people had been running large MySQL clusters for a long time. Why hadn't MySQL scalability been solved by that point
1: in time? Anybody that actually ran MySQL at a massive scale actually are companies that had huge engineering depth. Many of them were actually people who knew MySQL inside out, and they were very smart engineers, and they actually solved this problem through application sharding, basically. So they, they actually sharded their database and then changed the application to handle the fact that this is now sharded. So it wasn't really solved by a formal system. It was just solved by each company by applying their own techniques. And each one of them solved it differently. I mean, Facebook solved it one way. Twitter solved it another way. And every big company that you see has a different way that they solve the problem.
0: I see. And what we're going to get towards with Vitesse is Vitesse solved it in a way that you just all of the scalability problems are abstracted into the the database itself and so you don't have to write application specific logic because why would you have to you wouldn't want to write application specific logic to scale your database you would want all that to be in the database which is why you when you were faced with this scalability issue at youtube you took a step back and you basically, it sounds like you took almost like a spiritual journey into the, the world of databases, like thinking very deeply about how to solve this problem. And you, you came out with the solutions in Vitesse. I think when I was reading about Vitesse, the typical MySQL solutions prior to Vitesse, they required expensive hardware. Is that right? Like there was not a solution that just used commodity hardware?
1: That's correct. So you start off with commodity hardware, and because you cannot trivially shard an application when the database is growing, people typically uh, scaled MySQL up almost like a mainframe. I hear of some Vitess users that uh, migrated uh, out of their existing MySQL hardware. Some of them were saying that their hardware costs like a hundred thousand dollars. So that's how big of a machines they grew into before they said, "Well, this is." not going to work out in the long run. And then they decided to go the sharding way.
0: And you wanted to solve these problems in open source, but there were some tight couplings between the MySQL infrastructure and the YouTube specific infrastructure. It sounds like you had done your own application specific sharding at YouTube.
1: Yes, we did. The first sharding that we did was application. And when we actually thought of Vitesse, we we were not, really thinking about coming up with a generic way to solve the sharding problem. We thought we'll just expose our way uh, of solving sharding and have other people adopt it. But it it became obvious that that was not going to be the right approach, that the only approach that people would like to use is one where the application remains agnostic of sharding.
0: Database infrastructure often starts out with masters and replicas as soon as you are going to if you decide you want to have backups you have a master and you have some replicas and then eventually you shard your database because it becomes too much data to be on any single node and then each of the shards has a master and replicas why doesn't this strategy just scale to infinity why do you have to build something specific why do you have to build application sharding why can't you just infinitely scale this model of masters, replicas, and shards.
1: That is essentially how all companies ended up with. Anybody who was able to shard and use replicas, they pretty much were able to scale indefinitely. Uh, The good example would be both Facebook and Twitter. This is exactly what they did. So once you can do that, once you have made the application absorb the complexity of sharding, then you can scale indefinitely and forever. And uh, as you know, Facebook has huge QPS. Same with YouTube. The place where it becomes complex is when they start to add newer features. And every new feature has to carry this burden of sharding.
0: Can you just give an example of application-level sharding? Oh, an application-level sharding.
1: I should uh, probably take uh, YouTube as an example since I've been there. In YouTube, we decided to shard by the user, which means that if I, as a user, come in and create an account, we decide that you live on that shard. And we made another decision, which is the videos that the users create also live with the same shard as the user. So that has some advantages and some disadvantages. One advantage is, Get me all the videos that this user has becomes a very inexpensive query. But when you start to go into what are all the videos that this user liked, that becomes now a cross-shard query because a user might have liked videos across many other shards. Which means that the application, when it says, oh, get me all the videos for this user, it knows that I need to figure out which shard this user lives in and then I have to send the query there. But, but then if it decides, oh, I want to see all the videos that this user liked, then I have to either have secondary information about where the videos are or send this query to all shards and then fetch that information to return to the, uh, the application.
0: And that complexity is pushed to the application developer. The application developer themselves has to be aware of of the sharding schema in order to figure out how to correctly query the cluster database?
1: Exactly. So every user has to know what data lives together and what data does not. And they have to change their query to uh, take care of that. And uh, there are bugs all the time <laughs> because somebody forgets something else.
0: Right. And not to mention, if you ever wanted to change the clustering layout, you would just destroy every application developer who has written against that yeah, schema. It's
1: impossible. It's impossible. <laughs> Pretty much not done. It's never, ever done. Once you've decided to shard one way, you are stuck with it.
0: Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Well, let's get into Vitesse. So Vitesse is a way to abstract away these scalability problems so that the developer and the database operator do not have to think about them. Describe some of the high-level goals of Vitesse.
1: So, Vitesse actually has three major goals. The Historically, the first goal that we started with was just to protect MySQL, because that's what we were suffering from the most, because we were already sharded. So, solving sharding was not our primary goal. We were more interested in making sure that bad queries written by the developers don't take the database down. So, that's one major goal of Vitesse. The second one was, we thought like the application somehow knows where to send the query, and how does the application know where to send the query was kind of the main question that we asked ourselves. And we realized that there is direct correlation between the application knowing where to send the query and the where clause that the application used to send the query. And then you reverse that uh, relationship and you say, if you look at the where clause, I can figure out where to send the query and the application doesn't need to tell me. Uh, was when we got the inspiration that we can do transparent sharding where the application does not need to know where, where to send it. So so that which is the second major feature of Vitesse. And the third one is uh, something that kind of got uh, forced on us. And what happened was when we first built Vitesse, we were actually on uh, bare metal uh, on-prem. YouTube had their own data centers. And in 2013, we were required to move uh, into the Google Cloud. And that was quite a challenge because... Vitesse being an open source project, and Google is an ecosystem that has its own APIs and infrastructure. And many of those things don't have equivalence in the outside world. We had to make a decision about whether to stop Vitesse as an open source project and fully internalize it, or whether we can make some trade-offs and still keep Vitesse as open source while figuring out how to run it uh, in the Google Cloud. And we ended up going for the second option, which is We'll see how to make this work and see how far we can go. Uh, We had a few challenging times, but we managed to succeed to run Vitesse in Borg, which is Google's internal cloud, and and build interfaces. For example, outside we have gRPC, and inside we have stubby. And there are mappings for each of the features like that, So, which became kind of Vitesse's third biggest advantage, which is being able to run in any cloud environment and non-cloud environment because of all this versatility that we built in the software.
0: And that sets you up quite well for today where we have Kubernetes being widely accessible, but don't wanna get ahead of ourselves. Let's say I've got a MySQL database. It's rapidly growing out of control. How do I start using Vitesse?
1: So there are a few approaches that uh, Vitesse users have used. The one uh, that I generally encourage people to do is to just deploy Vitesse on top of your database. So Vitesse can run like a middleware. So you deploy Vitesse like an application that uses the database, and then you can go back and forth between Vitesse and uh, your database. So you could, for example, trickle some queries to Vitesse and see how it handles it. And as you gain confidence, then you can, over time, migrate entirely all your traffic into Vitesse. But once you've done that, you can go underneath and uh, split tables, reshard your database, and the application will remain mostly agnostic of what is happening
0: underneath. So when Vitesse is deployed, it attaches a component called VT tablet on top of each MySQL shard. So I've got this sharded MySQL database, and this VT tablet is a ...component that controls the interfaces between Vitesse and the MySQL shard. So the VT tablet interfaces with the MySQL daemon on each of those shards. And VT tablet also interfaces with VT gate, which is a piece of middleware. And VT gate communicates with all of those VT tablets... ...so that the VT gate can orchestrate things between the tablets. And then when an application makes a query to my Vitesse cluster that query hits a VT gate, and then VT gate communicates with all of those MySQL shards via the VT tablets. Is that an accurate description? That's accurate. The only addition I would add is
1: we present the architecture that way where the VT tablet is attached to a MySQL that is actually not necessary. So the you could actually view... VTest has a VT gate plus a bunch of VT tablets that connect to an existing My set of MySQL instances. So that's the alternate way to look at this architecture where then VTest appears as a pure middleware. But if you are going to be wanting to use Vtest to also manage your own databases, then it is better to attach the VT tablet with MySQL and see the VT tablet and MySQL as a single
0: instance. Describe what happens when a query is issued to Vitesse.
1: Yes, that's a beautiful story that I love to tell, which is the life of a query. (laughs) So the the application would connect to uh, one VT gate through a load balancer. Typically, there will be multiple VT gates in behind that load balancer. And those VT gates are essentially stateless, which means that you can scale them up and down based on increasing or decreasing load. So the first thing that VTK does is parse your query. So that's one unique thing that we did in VTES. A very early decision, they said, we are going to build a parser because we have to be able to understand the query In if we are going to do anything intelligent with uh, any system. So VTK first parses a query, and it has to make a few decisions. One is, which table are you trying to read from? So based on that information, it makes a decision about, which VT tablet or which physical database that table lives in, and that's the decision number one. The decision number two is, is your table sharded or is your database sharded? If it is sharded, I have to figure out which particular shard I have to send the query to. And for that, it looks at the where clause. And of course, it's actually, I'm talking about a very simple use case where you're reading from just one table and you're not doing a a complicated join or anything. So once that is figured out, It also uh, has to make a third decision, which is, are you trying to do a consistent read? Do you want this data to be read from a master or do you want it to be read from a replica because you don't uh, require consistency? Then it makes that third decision and and uses these three uh, decisions that it made to direct the query to one of the VT tablets. So the VT tablet does its own parsing and the VT tablet was written more to protect MySQL. So all the features that I talked about where people write bad queries and stuff, those are all handled by VT Tablet. So VT Tablet, for example, would parse your query and say, hey, this looks like an unbounded read. I'm going to add a limit class. Make sure that you don't end up scanning the entire table and uh, blowing up the database. So it adds those protection artifacts to your query and sends it to MySQL. So finally, MySQL executes your query and then returns the results. And the results are then uh, returned back to VTGate. And if VTGate had uh, sent this query to multiple VT tablets because your WHERE clause required you to do a scatter query, VTGate combines the results and sends them back as if you issued the query to a single database, even though underneath the query might have been rewritten in multiple parts. So that's the full life story of a query. And what about... A write to Vitesse? A write to Vitesse performs, happens more or less the same way because an update or an insert or a a delete, uh, they all have where clauses. And it uses the same mechanism to to figure out where to send a query. And then the only difference is that uh, this time it knows that you're writing, which means that it asks VT Tablet to open a transaction on its behalf before writing. And this can actually go across multiple shards because you may issue a begin and then you may issue two or three write statements. And uh, some of those write statements can go to uh, different VT tablets. And a transaction is opened in each VT tablet on behalf of this one logical transaction that the application is running. And at the end, when the application issues a commit, the commit is then transmitted to all VT tablets that got involved in that
0: transaction. And is there some serialization required in order to make sure that you know data doesn't get read in uh, inconsistent fashion?
1: Uh, no, that's one uh, limitation of Vitesse, which we call uh, uh, Vitesse gives you read committed uh, consistency, which means that when you perform a read while these transactions are being written, whatever is committed is what you read. And that's a limitation of the database. It would be nice to have what they call as a repeatable read uh, transaction, but that is currently available only if you are within one shard. So if you're going cross shard, then you get a read committed consistent view. However, this is something that I've uh, not covered in many uh, talks. We are talking to the Facebook engineers who developed MyRock's which is an alternate storage engine to InnoDB. And that engine allows you to request a specific snapshot of data that is not the latest. And that feature can be used to provide MVCC, which is the the alternate name for repeatable reads. So we do intend to eventually uh, make that feature available once we deploy with us on MyRocks.
0: To be clear, if two reads and a write got issued at time zero, then it's possible that the first read could get processed, and then the write gets processed, and then the second read gets processed, and then the two reads, despite being both issued at the same time, could return different data? Correct. That would that would be
1: the case in InnoDB. But in MyRocks, what happens is that when you issue a read, it gets associated with a timestamp. And then you say that when then you once you get that timestamp, the subsequent reads that you send to other databases, you basically say, do not give me data that is newer than this timestamp, which means that you will get a uh, cross shot consistent view of all your data as of your first read. So that is how uh, that's because uh, the MyRock storage engine is an append only engine, which means that it has all previous snapshots of your data so it can go back and read you can request uh, data as of certain time and it can give you that data whereas in innodb it overwrites your data so you, you do not have an older snapshot to request
0: mm-hmm. so would you say that you probably shouldn't use Vitesse today to maybe manage like banking transactions or something else where you where you need explicit serializability
1: ironically i would have said that but ironically Square Cash is a major user of the test. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> And I can see why and how, because I, I have also been in PayPal from the early days. And uh, it is surprising, the only time you require reads to be consistent is when you want to perform a transaction. And at that time, a snapshot consistent view is actually not sufficient. What you actually want is a locked serializable read, and that is uh, possible in any database, even across charts. So the serializable read where you do select for update, because I intend to change this row, I don't want this row to change when I update its balance, is something that is available with Vitesse also. So it's not actually as important a feature as it is uh, made out to be. Many people can live with uh, um, read-committed consistency most of the
0: time. Okay, I think I understand. So if I started using Vitesse and my database keeps growing and growing, eventually it's going to need to re-shard. And this is something that would be impossible to explain over a podcast, because it's just probably a little bit too too uh, diagram necessitating. But let's talk a little bit more abstractly. Why is resharding a complicated problem?
1: So the resharding is complicated because uh, I remember having this argument about after we resharded at YouTube, uh, what we ended up doing was it becomes complicated because data is now all over the place. You have masters and you have replicas. And not just replicas locally, you also have replicas across various data centers. So you are now, you now have such a complicated topology. How do you make sure that you haven't made a small mistake in your script and accidentally sent the data to the wrong shard or to the wrong replica? How do you ensure that a replica isn't accidentally connected to the wrong master. So this big mesh that you have built, you multiply that complexity by secondary system that you are bringing, and they all should be correctly connected to the source system, is a huge nightmare and almost impossible to do manually, which is uh, what makes the Vitesse resharding so exciting.
0: So the database engine, or I guess Vitesse, Takes care of resharding in a way that is entirely transparent to the database operator. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. The
1: database operator has a little bit of uh, control and decision making to do. They, for example, have to decide how they want to split the data. They may say, "Oh, this shard is hot." Maybe instead of splitting it two-way, we'll split this one three-way, whereas the other shards will split them two-way. So those levels of decisions are made by the operators. But once those decisions are made, they uh, they just have to bring up these target shards and then push a button, and then at the end, your resharding is completely done.
0: Okay. In order for the Vitesse system to be able to coordinate these queries among different shards and abstract away all the complexity of this sharded infrastructure the vt tablet has to be i believe has to be aware of a lot of information like the vt tablet has to be aware of what information is on different shards what the scheme of the database is perhaps what other vt tablets are doing can you talk about the implementation of the VT tablet, or maybe maybe the, the relationship between the VT tablet and the VT gate as well. You could just give me a little bit more information on the data layout yeah. among these components. So the VT tablet itself
1: doesn't concern itself with other VT tablets. Its only job is uh, to take care of the MySQL that it is attached to and serve queries from it. So that so we are actually thinking of adding some uh, relationships across VT tablets, but most VT tablets just operate by themselves. Uh, so their only job is to...
0: Right, I'm sorry, I, I had it backwards. I'm sorry, I had it backwards. So the VT, VT gate, VT gate is what I meant to say. So the VT gate is, again, the middleware that communicates Correct. with the VT tablets that are attached to the MySQL daemons. So I, I'm sorry about that. I should have said the VT gate needs to be aware of some of this information. Is that right? Yes.
1: Yes, correct. So the, this is something that we believe we did some really innovative stuff here, which is when we designed how VTGate is going to handle sharding, we set aside what traditional sharding was considered to be done. Like sharding is, is a concept that came out of NoSQL databases and the Obvious question is always, what is your sharding key? The moment you say, I'm going to shard, you ask, what is your sharding key? Mm -hmm. But what we did was uh, actually use start with the relational database as a source and extend those concepts into sharding. So that uh, led to a few architectural changes. For example, the entire sharding topology or layout is actually described in something that is similar to a database schema. So in a database, you would say, this, these are my tables. These are my indexes. And uh, you talk about some table layout. If you are in mainframe database uh, world in MySQL, they are always simple files. In the same way, when you describe, your, you use a similar language to describe your sharding at the VTGate level. So we actually call it the V schema, which stands for the VTS schema. And then you say, this, these are my tables. These tables are in these key spaces these tables are uh, and these case these key spaces are sharded and when you talk about sharding you you also have a formal language that you use to describe how the table is sharded which means that which also extends database concepts so you have something like primary index which is very similar to a sharding key but there are differences and there are secondary indexes and there is also the loose concept of a foreign key which is very very useful when you want data to actually be co-located so that your joints can be more efficient. So that information is actually external to the VTGate engine. So it's actually like an input, which means that very different uh, different organizations have very, very completely different schemas, and they all work fine with uh, the same VTGate engine.
0: One of the ideas that you wanted to deal with better on Vitesse was connection pooling. Can you explain what connection pooling is? Oh, connection pooling is actually the first problem
1: we had to solve because that was what was hurting YouTube the most. The way that it solves actually two problems. One is what we call as uh, the thundering herd problem. So there are thousands of clients connected to a MySQL database, and if that database goes down, and uh, this is at like at YouTube scale, huge QPS. And uh, these thousands of clients are like pounding this database and suddenly this database goes down and all these thousands of clients are now going to go migrate to a new database and issue connection, new connection requests and start pounding it. This is something that MySQL is not geared to handle very well. And what happens in such cases is that these thousand kind of connections, when they go hit the other database, they essentially take the other database down and it becomes kind of a vicious loop. And we actually, uh, before with we, we had to actually write some um, throttling logic to prevent this thundering hurt from taking down databases. So the connection pool, what it does is it comes from the fact that uh, to max out a MySQL database, you don't really need many connections. Like if you have like about 24 connections or so, you can you can max out a MySQL database with just that many. So what we did was we created 24 connections to MySQL and multiplexed all client requests through those 24. So what happened was if there was uh, if a reparent happened where you suddenly had to migrate your data to another MySQL, then you only open 24 connections. So those thundering herd uh, requests will not take down your MySQL. And the other problem is that it solves is... Uh, When there are huge spikes that can happen, once in a while, somebody becomes very popular uh, and there's this huge increase in traffic. When that happens, the overload is something that MySQL is not very good at handling. And in this case, again, the same connection pool will make sure that MySQL is maximally utilized, but not overloaded, which actually ends up serving all your traffic much faster than it would have otherwise served if you had just sent all those queries directly to MySQL. So those are the two big problems that connection pooling solved for us. And it actually bought, bought us about uh, two years of runway, just that one feature. So it's a huge <laughs> feature.
0: <laughs> Very cool. I want to put this in broader context. So I saw you at KubeCon in, in Copenhagen, which was a great conference. I, I had a really good time there. Kubernetes is making it a lot easier for people to take control of distributed infrastructure. And Vitesse recently became part of the CNCF, which is this collection of cloud-native products. It's kind of like the, not product, projects, which is kind of like the Apache Foundation or the Linux Foundation, where you've got these collection of open-source projects. What is the relationship between Vitesse and Kubernetes? Vitesse and Kubernetes. So, Vitesse actually
1: was Kubernetes ready before Kubernetes was born. (laughs) (laughs) That's because we got lucky because uh, the, the effort that we did to make Vitesse run on Google Borg was painful when we did it but it paid off big time when Kubernetes <laughs> it was announced. sure did. <laughs> <laughs> so that is the relationship that we have. We probably were the first ones to blog about being ready for Kubernetes. And it's, it's ironic because people were saying, oh, it's impossible to run databases in the cloud it's impossible to do it, and says, what are you talking about? We can run in Kubernetes, no problem. Why do people no say problem. that? <laughs> I think the biggest fear they have is the fact that the instances are ephemeral, that they can be taken down by the software, is something that they are very, very uncomfortable with.
0: So for anybody who has not dealt with EC2 instances on a regular basis, or any <laughs> cloud infrastructure instances, they die, they go away, <laughs> like they disappear unexpectedly. Byzantine failures do happen in the cloud all the time.
1: Yes, yes. And we were actually uh, like, uh, we we had our pain points when we uh, deployed with on Borg. The first two years were very rough. We used to get uh, tens of pages per day when we started off. And we had to go back to a few backups and restore them and recover data and stuff in the initial stages. And then we learned our lesson about how to make sure that you can run on the cloud without losing data and with full uptime. So that was a good lesson that we learned when we moved to Borg that uh, the, the, when the like the weird things happen, like Borg would, for example, take down your instance and then bring up another database on that same host and port, Oh, <laughs> for example. So you had to build defenses against that where you constantly keep identifying, making sure that you're talking to the right database. So all these things had to be written to be able to to become comfortable running in the cloud. Do
0: you have to make some kind of like hash the database to make sure it's like still the right database that you think you're... Like,
1: yeah, we changed our request itself to say that every request contained the database name that I'm talking to. And that's the first thing that a VT Tablet validates. Is the keyspace name matching? Is the shard name matching? Okay, I'm going to let you execute the query.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well and how does the experience with Borg so Borg, for people who don't know, is the the thing that came before Kubernetes at Google or Google still runs on Borg, the cluster management system there. Kubernetes took a lot of the learnings from Borg and Omega and open sourced it as a way to manage infrastructure. How does the experience of running a distributed database against Kubernetes compare to running one against Borg?
1: So I would say Borg is still functionally way ahead of Kubernetes. So there are still things that Kubernetes needs to build and grow to reach what we could do with Borg when we were inside, When I mean, what test can do in Borg. Like, for example, uh, on Borg, we run tens of thousands of nodes just with test nodes. These are just VT tablets. And uh, they are spread all over the world in many data centers and the entire deployment is fully automated no human touches anything when test gets when a, when it's updated vitask gets deployed into borg uh, it just all this happens automatically uh, so functionally borg is way ahead of kubernetes but Kubernetes is getting there. So I would say deployment help, uh, ability to deploy, flexibility in, uh, in how you deploy, and also cross-world, cross-data center support are areas where I think Kubernetes would need to catch
0: up. One of the things that I was paying attention to at KubeCon was the storage interfaces on Kubernetes. How important is that to you at, at Vitesse? Yeah, I I think I could
1: be wrong, but I feel like Kubernetes needs to spend more time studying databases, finding out what is the common element between them, common trait, being able to recognize what a master is, being able to recognize a replica, being able to figure out load balancing between master and replica. Those are things that are uh, common traits that exist across most data stores, And those things, if they are somehow supported by Kubernetes, I think it would be nice. They have this concept of the operator, which helps you define those things. But I think those things, if you went the operator route, I feel like every data store person would end up replicating a lot of that logic that they would write for their operator, which I feel like is something Kubernetes can do.
0: Mm what are the debates that are being had right now around storage on kubernetes
1: kubernetes actually hasn't started tackling this problem at this point i think uh, they are still from uh, based on uh, what i see in terms of discussion they are still trying to resolve how block storage is unified and i think once they get that get put that behind them i have a feeling the next thing that people will start to focus on is uh, data. At this point, it's kind of brushed off as, okay, just build an abstraction and just use this as a black box. But sooner or later, I think uh, people will start to realize that some standardization would help.
0: Okay, so just to give people some color here, there is a desire to be able to run databases and other stateful long-lived workloads on Kubernetes. And In order to do that, there needs to be some standardization. And and because of that, because the reason for that is because if you can do that, then you would be able to migrate database workloads to any place that runs Kubernetes. Like if you had an open source database that ran on Kubernetes, you could migrate your database to wherever your Kubernetes instance is, as opposed to today, where you often have cloud provider-specific APIs into the database that you want to to work with. Is that would you say that's accurate?
1: Yeah. So the one cool thing is the meta controller demo that I showed at, uh, uh, KubeCon was developed by Anthony. He developed it on GCE, and all I did was just use a script and run it on AWS, and it just came up. It was amazing.
0: So you've got a chance to become a database that runs on Kubernetes that is extremely portable. That seems like the huge opportunity for Vitesse.
1: Yeah, yeah. And I was I was so excited when I saw that he wrote the operator and he demoed it on GCE. And all I did was run his script on AWS and just, it just came up. And just equally well, then once it comes up, then it's just Vitesse, you just use it.
0: So the implication here is if somebody has a MySQL database on a cloud provider that they feel is more expensive than or is more expensive than what they want to be paying for they could spin up a kubernetes cluster on a cheaper cloud provider put vitess on that kubernetes instance and copy all their data from the mysql database on that other cloud provider to vitess and then they
1: don't even have to do that we actually built uh, a proof of concept where we brought up a, a test cluster on AWS and replicas on GCE. Oh, okay. <laughs> this was like a part of the planet scale because some people were asking for cross-cloud solutions across RDS and GCE. So we did that and performed a reparent from AWS to GCE. A re-what? A Reparent, which means that, so you bring up a cluster in AWS and you bring up some replicas in GCE and connect them up, which means that the replicas are up to date. They are only a few seconds behind. So a reparent essentially means that I'm completely transferring traffic over from AWS to GCE. Mm. So the master traffic, all rights, everything moves over atomically. Wow. So Hmm. that's a cool demo that we have.
0: Yeah. And so is this do you have a a model in place for how So your company plans scale data? I know you're doing something around Vitesse. I actually did not look at all into what your company is, is trying to do, though. Maybe you could tell me about what the company is, is planning to do.
1: So PlanetScale is going to do uh, three things. Uh, one is basically it run Vitesse as a service entirely for, for you. So you basically say it's kind of similar to you go to Amazon, you want RDS. You can, you come to PlanetScale, you say, I want Vitesse. And then you push a button and then it brings up a Vitesse cluster for you. And then you start using it. And then we'll take care of scaling it as needed, resharding as needed, uh, monitoring pages, so all that will be set up for you. So that's one thing that PlanetScale will do. It also plans to help those enterprise customers that are uh, on bare metal, on-prem, that would like to run Vitesse and would like to have support and software. So the software that we build to run Vitesse uh, in the cloud, we will make them available to enterprises so that they can benefit from the same automation that we built. And the third one is there is a group of uh, companies that just want to run with tests by themselves and they just need uh, basic support. And for them, we'll provide uh, training courses so that they know how to how to get started with it.
0: Awesome. Okay. Well, I will be continuing to cover that as your company develops I had to ask just just one last thing because i'm sure you get asked this question all the time but you know before youtube like you said you were at paypal but before paypal you were at x.com which is the first company that or the second company i guess elon musk started what was your experience with elon musk like back in the day oh elon
1: is an inspiring
0: person (laughs) there's
1: an interesting interview story that i had was um when I went to interview to X.com, I thought it was a bank, so I showed up in a suit. <laughs> <laughs> and Elon was like, what the hell are you wearing? <laughs> so, yeah, those are, he's just inspiration. You just hear him. Think, uh, if he starts talking, you just sit and you can just keep listening to him.
0: Okay. All right. Well, Sugu, I want to thank you for coming on Software Engineering Daily. It's been really fun talking to you about Vitesse. Yeah, and thank you very much. Okay, wonderful.
1: Wow.